Once upon a time, in an age of forests and firelights, our ancestors were wise to the spectrum of human identity. Among the fairy tales and myths they told were stories of glass coffins and marble statues, eunuchs and androgynes, chaste marriages and bodily transformations, symbolic stories that hint at other identities, tales of asexuality. This is the Asexual Fairy Tales Podcast, and I'm your storyteller, Elizabeth Hopkinson. Each month I'll be reading you another story from my books of asexual fairy tales. Some of these are old tales of myth and legend, in which I first found representation for my asexual identity. Others are original stories by me, based on traditional motifs. It's a personal selection. I hope you find something in it that speaks to you too. So sit back if you are able, relax and enjoy another asexual fairy tale. Hello and welcome to a new year of the Asexual Fairy Tales podcast. We're going to begin this year with the story of Pygmalion and Galatea from Greek mythology. Some people find this to be a misogynistic story and therefore troubling. But I don't. I've always read it as an asexual tale about longing for a platonic ideal of love and beauty in a sex-crazed world. I've always related to it ever since I first read it in a translation of Ovid's Metamorphoses, an epic poem written around AD 8 in the time of Caesar Augustus. This reimagining of the story is partly inspired by Ovid's version and partly by an episode from Fantasties, by the Victorian writer of fairy tales, George MacDonald, which is a book I absolutely love. In this episode, the protagonist, Anados, discovers a marble cave, where he is reminded of the stories of Pygmalion, of the half-marble prince, which has been retold on this podcast, and of Sleeping Beauty. He frees the form of a woman from the rock, but she flees from him. He spends the rest of the book pursuing her as his ideal, while simultaneously trying to lose his shadow. Pygmalion the sculptor was sad. He longed to find a companion with whom to share his life, but when he looked around his homeland of Cyprus, it seemed that everyone was obsessed with only one thing, sex. Wherever he looked, at festivals, in poetry, in the marketplace, there was no escape from thrusting horns and gyrating hips. It seemed that the ultimate goal of everyone's life was to copulate as often and as raunchily as possible. Where is the beauty and romance in that, he thought. Why does anyone need sex anyway? Love should be about coming into the secret garden, listening to the song of nightingales beneath the moon. Surely that is a much better kind of ecstasy. Am I the only person who dreams of a pure, chaste love? Does no one understand? And he remembered the words of the philosopher Plato, that ideal forms exist before real, live creations. Perhaps my ideal partner exists somewhere in the world of ideas, and I have only to dream her into being, he thought. As the days went by, he spent more and more time daydreaming about his ideal of love and beauty, but nothing seemed to change. Cyprus remained as sex-driven as ever, and Pygmalion met no one who shared his hopes and dreams. 
One day there was a festival to honour Venus, goddess of love. As Cyprus was the birthplace of Venus, it was ill fortune not to attend, but Pygmalion went with a heavy heart. Musicians and dancers filled the streets on the way to the temple. White heifers with gold on their horns processed to the altar to be slaughtered as offerings. Pygmalion shuffled through the crowd to place his offering of flowers and incense at Venus' temple. There, on the steps of the temple, stood the mirror of Venus, three huge discs of polished copper, joined by hinges and arranged in a concave arc. The left-hand mirror showed Venus in her earthly aspect, as goddess of fertile nature and all that grows and multiplies. The right-hand mirror showed her in Pygmalion's hated aspect of Venus infernal, goddess of lust and vanity. But the central mirror showed the heavenly Venus, the goddess of divine beauty and love. Oh, divine Venus! Pygmalion prayed, laying down his offering. Grant that I might discover my ideal partner, and no longer be alone. In his ears Pygmalion heard the hush of the surf, and a voice whispering, Step inside my mirror, if you would gain your heart's desire. Then it seemed to Pygmalion that the central mirror grew and grew until it was no longer a disk of copper but a portal. Pygmalion stepped through and found himself in a cave of white marble, lit from above by a rosy light. Birdsong and the soft laughter of a stream could be heard from the forest outside. Pygmalion sat on a rock in the centre of the cave and looked around. Then he stood up and looked more closely. The faint outline of a woman's form was trapped within the marble. I must free her, said Pygmalion. As if by magic, he found the tools of his trade were in his hand, the sculptor's chisel and hammer. Delicately he chipped at the rock, a fragment here, a shaving there. To rush would be to damage the lovely form. Already Pygmalion could see she was exactly the sort of person he had imagined. I will call you Galatea, he said. How I will love you. He kept working, oblivious to all else but the form taking shape in front of him. Her shoulders were now defined, the curve of her back, each toe of her feet, and her face. He had seen that sweet smile, those twinkling eyes night after night in his sleep, since he was a boy. She was almost complete. Pygmalion stood back to view his work, wiping sweat and dust from his brow. At that moment there was a crack, a grinding of rock on rock, and, miracle of miracles, Galatea stepped down from the cavern wall, no longer a statue but a living woman. Here was Pygmalion's very ideal of love and beauty come to life before him. Pale as marble she was, and dressed in a flowing white robe. Her cheek and fingers were almost translucent, so the rosy light of the cave shone through her. Pygmalion gasped and rushed to embrace her. Galatea! My Galatea! he cried. The marble woman stepped back, scorn in her eyes. Who gave you permission to touch me? she said, and before Pygmalion could stop her, she ran out into the forest. 
he tried to follow but could see no sign of her. He had only managed to touch one shoulder with the tip of his fingers, and that was as cold as stone. He sank back onto the rock, his head in his hands. "'What a heartless fool I am,' he said. "'I prayed to Venus for a partner unlike the men and women of my island, "'a companion of the heart, not the flesh. "'And the moment when I find her, what do I do? "'But act just like them, rushing to speak with bodies instead of souls.' "'He kicked away the sculptor's tools and got to his feet. "'Goddess of divine beauty and love, I will not fail you again.' I will seek out Galatea and make amends. So saying, he left the cave and went off into the forest, the way he had seen Galatea flee. He was no woodsman, and saw few signs of her passage save a broken branch and occasional footprint. The sun was hot overhead, and he found himself seeking deeper and deeper shade. Stumbling, he tripped over roots and ivy. The underground rustled with a threat of wild beasts. If night were to fall while he were here, Pygmalion feared he would be lost for ever. Suddenly the trees thinned out. Pygmalion found himself at the entrance to what he knew was a sacred grove. But this grove was not sacred to Venus, but to Diana, goddess of chastity. It was a place where men fear to tread, lest they be found unworthy as Actaeon was, who was transformed to a stag and hunted to death by his own hounds. Pygmalion broke a branch from the golden bough, as all must to enter that place. With humble steps he walked to the centre of the grove. There, beneath the shade of a cypress, stood Galatea, a statue once more. When Pygmalion saw her, he fell at her feet and wept the ground with his tears. "'Galatea, forgive me,' he said. "'Or oh, not, Galatea, if that's not what you wish to be called.' I saw a face like yours in my dreams, and believed that Venus led me to free you from the marble cave. Yet I would never possess you. I wish to be your friend and companion. I will not even attempt to hold your hand unless you tell me so. At this he swallowed hard, for he did wish to hold her hand, to rest his head against hers, to hug warmly. But he wished still more to explore the unknown contours of her soul, and that she might explore his. It was many minutes before Pygmalion found the courage to raise his eyes. When he did, he saw Galatea a woman once more, no longer white as marble, but fully flesh and blood. I dreamt of you when I was marble, she said, all through the long ages of rock and stone. I waited for a friend like you not bound by the obsession of this island. And now you have come and proved yourself true. Let us walk together, Pygmalion, and be companions always. Slowly they turned away from the grove, and walked back through the forest. Strange to tell, it wasn't long before they found themselves on the road to Pygmalion's village, arriving just as the moon first arose in the evening sky. Galatea reached out and took Pygmalion's hand, and it was warm. Thank you for listening to Asexual Fairy Tales. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast. If you really enjoyed it and want to buy me a coffee, you can do that at ko-fi.com 
Parkinson's slash Elizabeth Hopkinson 48513. Don't forget you can follow me on Twitter at hidden underscore grove or go to my website elizabethhopkinson.uk where you'll find links to all my books. All the links are in the episode description. I really appreciate all your support. Stay safe and keep reading.